long. Here he is now, in fact. Ladies and gentlemen, our conference on USAD Bellum will now turn to a distinguished panel focused on USAD Bellum and the International Court of Justice. Two of the most important components of the international legal system are the norms concerning lawful use of force in international relations and the International Court of Justice as one of the most important international institutions for legal adjudication of disputes. Beginning with the Corfu Channel case in 1946, the court has considered a number of cases presenting jus ad bellum as well as jus in bello normative issues. The handling of these cases, particularly in recent years, has generated considerable controversy. Indeed, the decisions of the court in the Nicaragua case was a major factor in the United States withdrawing from the general jurisdiction of the court as set out in Article 36.2 of the statute of the court. Getting USAD Bellum norms right is of central importance in the international legal system. No system of laws can fail to support minimum order. And this is particularly true in the system of laws between nations, where an absence of minimum order leads to death and destruction potentially on a massive scale. The normative system must sanction aggression that is illegal coercion, and it must support defensive responses against aggression. I particularly appreciated um, Joram Denstein's indication this morning that one of the problems neglected by the court <coughs> when it had basically uh, had a minimalist or narrow interpretation of the defensive right is that they were simultaneously helping the aggressor. And I think this is one of the most important points that we need to be considering. You cannot separate the importance of dealing together with aggression and defense. If you're going to take a minimalist view of defense, in reality what you're doing is providing assistance to the aggressor. And presumably the core of what we're about is to stop uh, illegal coercion, that is aggression. Similarly, getting the International Court of Justice right is critical for the health of the normative system against unauthorized coercion, but it is also critical to the health 
and effectiveness of the court. Because if the court deals poorly in an area of such central importance to the international legal system, it cannot but severely harm the court, as in fact happened with the loss of one of those that had previously been a 36-2 member. This panel will examine the use of force decisions by the International Court of Justice, will review whether the court has been deficient in its dealings with these norms, and if so, will seek to answer the question that Bobby Chesney had asked earlier, why is that so? It will also seek to answer, if that is so, how might that deficiency be appropriately addressed for the future? Our first panelist today is Professor Michael Newton. Michael Newton is a professor at Vanderbilt Law School who previously served in the legal department of the U.S. Military Academy, as well as serving as a professor in the International and Operational Law Division here of the Judge Advocate General School of the Army. Um, I am delighted to say that uh, Mike is a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law, has an LLM uh, from this law school. Uh, Professor Newton helped negotiate the Elements of Crimes document for the International Criminal Court as part of the U.S. delegation, and he coordinated the interface between the FBI and the ICTY while deploying to Kosovo to do the forensics field work to support the Milosevic indictment. He served in the Office of War Crimes Issues, U.S. Department of State, during both the Clinton and Bush administrations on that. Uh, Professor Newton. Thank you, John. This is a great panel. Uh, old friends and new friends. There's a few, a few years ago I was at the Naval War College, the conferences that Yoram and I and many others used to go to, uh, and the task was to debate, quote, quote, debate Christopher Greenwood. Uh, and a good friend of mine, Charles Garraway, pulled me aside right before. He says, Michael, he says, you know, when I first became a young lawyer, he said, they gave me two of the critical pieces of advice my mentor said. Don't ever forget these two pieces of advice. He said, number one, never steal your client's money. Good advice. Number two, never debate Christopher Greenwood in public, <laughs> as I'm about to go on stage. I feel a bit the same about following Yoram. You know, I feel like we could, we could sit and pick his brain for a very long time. Uh, the depth and the expertise. So this panel and my comments really want to want to extend Yoram's thoughts uh, and apply them in some different ways, add some Newtonism to Yoram. I subscribe to everything he said. Uh, but what I want to do is extend them just a bit. Uh, the topic of this panel, which is to focus explicitly on the ICJ cases, is a critically important topic for a lot of reasons. And I'll give you my macro theme, and then I'll explain this, and in the end, I want to give you three takeaways of modern trends that I see. Don't let them fool you. People will say, well, we've solved this problem in this modern trend, and the Newton answer is wrong. Don't buy it. It's overly simplistic, and it's just simply incorrect, both as a substantive matter and as a practical matter and as applied. Um, the overarching problem 
is one that I've wrestled with for a very long time, uh, one in fact that generated my book on proportionality, and it's this. When we talk about the use of force, the distinction between use ad bellum and use in bello, Yoram correctly said, we talk about those factors. We use necessity and proportionality and immediacy. The problem being, and this is the trend that the ICJ has done, is they've misapplied the concept of proportionality. They have taken use in bello proportionality, which I'll describe in a minute for the benefit of the students who are here who, who may have heard the word, but the normative content is still opaque and mysterious and use ad bellum proportionality, which are radically different things. They're built on different assumptions, they're different values, and in many ways they've conflated the two in ways that I think are dangerous on both sides of the equation. And I want to make very clear, for the military people, the corruption, and that's a strong word, but it's one I use intentionally, the corruption of use in bellum proportionality is very dangerous to your business and the way you do business. And you have to be very careful. That's one of the consequences of this string of ICJ decisions, which we'll talk about. On the flip side, and I think John is exactly right, Professor Moore, as, as you would say, is exactly right. The, the, the transfusion, uh, the transference, if you will, of, of use in bellow concepts into the use ad bellum concept actually affirmatively enables aggression or more correctly, endangers the right of self-defense, to be more pointed about it. That's the problem here. Now, you might say, let me, let me, so I want to set that up. Number one, let's be clear about why there are two different bodies of law. Use in bell and proportionality, I think, and I'm a minority on this, I think is most correctly summarized in Article 82B4 of the Rome Statute of the ICC. Look it up. You don't have, you need me to recite it to you. But I think that's the correct articulation because you have the 1977 protocol language. The word proportionality, by the way, of course, is not, is not in the 1977 protocols. It's not in the Geneva Conventions. Very deeply rooted concept, and the scholarship says that we never defined it because it was thought to be too slippery. Well, that's wrong. We always applied it. We knew what it was, but we never described the crime, which we did in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court. Right? which prohibits intentionally launching an attack in the knowledge that such attack will cause damage that's clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. I'm the minority view on this. People will argue with me, including Charles. They will say that there's a difference between the principle of proportionality and the crime of proportionality. I think that's wrong because all of the NATO states in the use in bello context took reservations on the principle of proportionality and all we did when we defined the crime was align the crime to the pre-existing articulations of the principle. Okay? So, there's the use in bello. Clearly intentionally launching an attack and the knowledge that such attack would create damage that is clearly excessive in relation to the concrete and direct overall military advantage anticipated. What's that got to do with the ICJ? The Usain Bellow test is framed along similar dimensions. What we're assessing is damage. Damage on the one hand versus the, the military advantage. What the ICJ has done is to extrapolate that into the use ad bellum context and frame an attack or frame a legal analysis almost exclusively based on a comparison of the intensity of violence. That's a fundamental legal error. 
and it's a corruption of use ad bellum. Use ad bellum is a very different test because they're dissimilar domains. Use ad bellum simply says, I'm allowed to use a degree of legal force necessary to eliminate the threat against me. That's the basis of self-defense. The late, great Bill Sapphire, you know, there, there are a few things in life that you're really proud of. Proud of your kids. I'm proud of the fact that Bill Sapphire actually quoted me one time <laughs> on that point. I was in Baghdad and the phone rings and it's William Sapphire. Of course, you have to take that phone call. And he says, I have four minutes. Explain proportionality to me. So it was a completely re re reactive, off the top of my head in Baghdad phone call. The use ad bellum proportionality is best explained, and this is the quote that he used in the New York Times. If a man punches you in the face, you can't burn his house down. There's a line between the lawful, defensive use of force, use ad bellum, appropriately to defend your citizens, your property, your sovereign rights, your sovereign prerogatives, and as Joram correctly said, trans transposing that line, crossing that line into punitive retribution, which in fact is not rooted in an appropriate proper self-defense. Mm -hmm. The court, in its jurisprudence, has completely messed that up by, by and analogizing use ad bellum self-defense, the use ad bellum norms, into uh, a similar scale and intensity. So for you military practitioners, you see the problem? If you take that concept out of use ad bellum, which is what the court has, has said, and you push it into use in bella, what you're really saying is your right to use force is limited to what they're using against you. Absolute trite. Legally incorrect. Now you, now you ask the question, John's saying, is he ever going to talk about the ICJ? Here you go. Ask the question, how did we get here? We have 9-11, and immediately after 9-11, we have a series of cases, and it's funny because they happened 2003, 2004, 2005, almost like raindrops, right? You get the, you get the, um, the oil platforms case, you get the wall case, Finally, you get DRC Uganda, and if you want to look it up, uh, the technical styling of the case is the Armed Forces on the Territory of Uganda is the subtitle. Yoram correctly framed this. John asked me to focus on that case because it's the latest in the evolution, and in my view, it's the one that sets the stage for a great misapplication. The theme running between all those cases is the premise that you may only lawfully use self-defense, uh, you may use ad bellum law, constrains you to only lawfully using force against state actors or, or, or actors with state attribution or as Joram described, proxy actors. The basis of the DRC Uganda case is so fundamentally flawed from the beginning because they simply say as a matter of a priori legal analysis, the dispositive issue because there's no attribution between insurgent groups operating off the soil of Uganda coming in, or DRC, coming into Uganda Article 2.4 has been violated because the Ugandans responded, period, full stop. This is like the good ship lollipop just kind of sailing along after 9-11. We settled that question on 9-11. Then in fact, as a matter of substantive international law, your right of self-defense, use ad bellum, can, can lawfully be implemented in the case of a non-state actor. To say it in the technical way, a non-state actor is capable of launching an armed attack within the meaning of Article 51 which gives rise to a lawful right of self-defense. The court is simply wrong on that. In case after case after case, they gloss past the obvious issue. The real question is, 
what is the proper legal context of necessity in the use ad bellum context? What is the proper legal context of proportionality in that use ad bellum context? And again here, the law and the court is all muddled because of, because of the inconsistency of the court with two fundamental results. And then I'll give you three reasons, three modern trends to watch for. And by the way, Yoram referenced, or somebody referenced earlier, the dicta in the decision. The dicta in the DRC Uganda case, once they've settled the issue, and you see why this is such lawyers, young lawyers particularly, mm -hmm. you see why you have to be careful, because if you ever look up DRC Uganda, this is the language you'll see quoted. Well, you know it's, completely, it's complete surplusage, because they've already said there's a violation of Article 2.4 because you're dealing with a non-state actor that's not attributable to the state. So why then go on and further muddy the water with respect to proportionality? Answer, there's an agenda. And the agenda is to minimize the appropriate latitude for states to exercise their right of self-defense, to constrain it, to cabinet, okay? The larger agenda is, with, with, with due respect to my great friend Charlie Dunlap, I think his, his insight is right. The larger agenda is to harmonize, to homogenize USAD bellum into one ni nicely, neatly cabined concept built on the human rights conception. That, that the use of force is undesirable and exceptional and should be constrained to the least, least, possible, uh, least possible intensity, the least possible scope, the very narrowest term. And you see what you're doing then, you're, number one, you're undermining the sovereign right of self-defense, but number two, you're, you're shifting the burden of proof. From a use in bellow context, very different applications in human rights law and use in bellow. So essentially what the ICJ is doing, and this is slightly oversimplified, is creating a harmonized, homogenized version of proportionality. But one that gets the law wrong on both sides of the scale. It undermines use ad bellum in ways that are very dangerous, and for you military practitioners, it undermines use in bellow in ways that make it absolutely fundamentally legally impossible to do your job and defend yourselves. That's a problem with two results. One, there's the hint that, that somehow when we're dealing with a non-state actor, there are even stricter, higher standards of necessity and, 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 and proportionality than would apply vis-a-vis -a, -vis a state. In other words, a two-tiered approach to, to eminency and proportionality. Newton says that's wrong on the law. And they never fully explain this. You know, my counter to the court would be, give us the precise contours of the legal test that you have in mind. They can't do it. They simply say in the, in the Uganda case that there's something fundamentally incorrect because you went hundreds of meters inland and you secured some towns. See, that's a necessity, that's an, an intensity analysis. There's a disconnect or a mismatch between your purported reason. Remember that the law of use ad bellum proportionality allows you to do everything necessary to eliminate the threat as long as it's tied correctly and in good faith to the elimination of the threat. So if that means I have to go hundreds of meters in, interdict supply lines, capture a town, capture a bridge, whatever, as long as I in good faith can say that I'm addressing my military activities against that threat, it's legitimate lawful self-defense under the rubric of proportion. And it's got nothing to do with intensity, okay? The reason they get that is because of they have transposed the intensity elements from use in bellow into use ad bellum, and they've done it incorrectly. 
The second problem is, is what I just said, is that they completely negate the, the, the breadth of latitude under USAD Bellum, not only to address a current attack or an impending attack, but of course you all know where I'm going with this, the ability to deter future attacks. And this, I think, is the area where the law is most in development right now, because the ICJ has set up essentially a, a, a jurisprudential train wreck. They've said future attacks are only, only in the most immediate necessity, the most immediate imminency, the most immediate, breathtakingly obvious cases. That's not the world in which we live. And, and, and the challenge in the next few years, I think, is to push on this future attack. How far does that extend uh, in direct participation language? How far does that extend to what the, what the DOD manual calls supporting forces? It's the same concept. Future attacks, imminent attacks, the law here is very unsettled. My sense is that the line of jurisprudence from Nicaragua to the oil platforms to the wall case to the DRC case has set that up for a very dangerous, very difficult answer. So what you see, in summary, is a vast disconnect between state practice in the real world and the way diplomats talk and what the ICJ would say in a matter of, of, of theory, which, of course, was not the point of the court. Let me give you three trends very quickly that, that a lot of people would point to and say, well, don't worry about it because we've solved this problem, okay? Number one. The new ICRC commentary attempts to conflate these issues. The ICRC simply says, as a matter of substantive international law, anytime you have any action on, by one state on the territory of another state, the full weight of use in bellow law of war is immediately implicated because, by definition, you have an armed conflict between those two states. Okay? Now, that's unprecedented. That's the ICRC commentary. I would push back on them and say, number one, show me any example of state practice that supports that mm -hmm. anywhere in the world. But number two, if you make that the binding legal rule, what you're really saying is USAD Bellum has been completely corrupted now. That's not the dispositive body of law any longer for the legality of assessing those attacks. Now we're just going to immediately revert to USAID Bellum. And I don't think, and I've talked to them about this, the ICRC despite the fact that these are two different bodies of law, in that way has undermined use ad bellum. The second thing, remember, Article 2.4 is a use Kogan's norm. So if you want to be strict about it, and if you're taking a law school exam, you ask the question, in undermining a use Kogan's norm, which is the prohibition against the use of force on the territory of another state, how do you change that norm? You change it by explicitly addressing the normative content of that use Kogan's norm and saying, we are now fundamentally changing the content of this use Kogan's norm. That's one of the problems in this line of jurisprudence is that they've not done that. They've simply said it doesn't apply. You see the problem? In the real world, the ICJ structured series of tests don't work and are ignored by states. Which, which in turn leads to a great deal of, of imprecision and unclarity. And the third thing that a lot of people will point to is to say, don't worry about all of this, because now we have Article 8 bis of the Rome Statute. We've now outlawed aggression. We're going to think of this as, as, as deferring uh, 
we've now empowered the ICC to be the dispositive body of this, this law. Because the ICC has jurisdiction over the crime of aggression in 8bis, the ICC will be the one to sort this out. And I would tell you respectfully, don't count on it. Because the law here is so muddled, the ICC simply won't have jurisdiction, and more importantly, the way Article 8bis and the implementing, uh, the implementing elements are worded, you won't have ICC jurisdiction over the cases that really matter. So what are you left with? You're left with a long line of ICJ cases that in my view are wrong on the law because they undervalue usin bello and usad bellum as distinctive bodies of law. They conflate that, they push it into a simple analysis of Article 2.4 and then what do they do? They avoid the question. That's the problem here. And I'm done. Mike, thank you very much. Our next panelist is Major General Charles J. Dunlap, Jr., who is the former Deputy Judge Advocate General of the U.S. Air Force, currently on the Duke Law Faculty, uh, where he is Professor of the Practice of Law and Executive Director of the Center on Law, Ethics, and National Security. Um, among other assignments, uh, he served as the Staff Judge Advocate for the Air Combat Command, U.S. Strategic Command, and Deputy Staff Judge Advocate for the U.S. Central Command, deployed for operations in the Middle East and Africa. Uh, one of the most important contributions uh, of the many that Major General Dunlap has made is his extraordinary work on lawfare. Uh, he has understood and articulated, I think, for all of us very effectively how the groups that seek to engage in aggression have understood that they can turn the law against us, particularly in seeking actions in the International Court of Justice, which is uh, something very, very sad and itself undermines the legal system. And thank you, Charlie, for the clarity of your work in that area. Charlie? Thank you very much, John, and uh, I'd like to thank the, the law school and everyone else involved in putting together this conference. It's great to be here. And it's also, I share Mike's trepidation of, of following uh, Urim, because whatever I say is uh, not as good as whatever he says, so keep that in mind. Uh, and it's wonderful to see old friends, Dave Graham, uh, Bobby Chesney, and, and everyone here. It's, it's really terrific. This is a very important topic. And who are UVA law students in the audience? Uh, gentlemen in the uh, UNC colored <laughs> sweater, what is the biggest use ad bellum issue right now, do you think? I mean, most recent in my mind, everything Professor Dinstein uh, talked about with uh, use of force in the proxy wars and non-international armed conflict, uh, specifically. Okay. Does anybody have a, a different different view? Ma'am? Just use your command voice. I know I, I can hear you. Uh, I 
think the extension of anticipatory self-defense, like Mr. Noon was saying, to preemptive and preventative forms of self-defense is okay. something that's on the forefront. Well, I, I, I'm not as smart as I thought, thought I was because I thought everybody would say, uh, what is an act of war in the cyber context? And the reason I say that is just yesterday in USA Today, there was an op-ed which said we need to call Russian meddling what it is, an attack on the United States. Well, words matter, especially in international law. And when we think about that, I think we do are struggling with what exactly is the law with respect to cyber and what acts are permitted in response. And that brings us to looking at the structure of the ICJ, but indeed the structure of any court. And I think part of the challenge in this particular area of the law is that the ICJ, remember, it's not like our courts. It's not a court of precedent. They do issue advisory opinions. In other words, they don't have a, have a case or conflict to issue uh, an opinion. And by definition, advisory opinions are going to have to be uh, uh, very broad and, and not focused on the specific facts from which they arise. And in relationship to this area of the law, even though uh, Professor Moore's article is the seminal piece in USAID Mellon in the ICJ, and mandatory reading, by the way, for students to take my course in use of force, but thinking about advisory opinions, we've talked about a number of ICJ cases, but what about the nuclear weapons case? What does the court say in that case? They go through 400 or 500 pages denigrating uh, nuclear weapons in terms of, of being proper uses of force in any context. But then at the end of the day, they say we cannot say that the possession or use of nuclear weapons would be unlawful in the circumstance of the if the survival of the state was at stake. So in other words, uh, what does that mean? And how does that fit into this larger architecture of the use of force to include use of bellum? And I think that one of the problems that is specifically highlighted by these decisions is when was the last decision? Wasn't it armed activities? Wasn't it like uh, 2005? Nu nuclear weapons. Or, or came uh, later. Two Armed activities with 2005. Armed activities with 2005. So almost by definition, the ICJ is going to be trailing at a great distance technological developments. And I think some of the problems that you see in these cases are because of the lack of expertise, an almost impossible level of expertise that, that a court would have. For example, in our courts, uh, you know, we have the political question doctrine, we have various other doctrines that stop the courts essentially from picking targets in, in drone cases. Uh, because the courts say, we don't have the competence to do this. And I, it really struck me in Oil Platform's case where they make the judgment that, oh, you don't need to kill all these Iranian boats because, geez, number one, they bollocks up the whole proportionality idea. But secondly, it's their judgment that that's what was needed to stop the Iranian. That's a military judgment of which they have no competence to make. There is a capacity for the court to, uh, and I 
I think uh, I think that they used it in Corfu Channel, a panel of experts or committee of experts. But in this area, I think it would be very hard to assemble a committee of experts when you're looking at technological uh, technological incidents, for example, related to cyber. How are you really going to do that as a practical matter? And the reason I'm mentioning all this is because I think that the ICJ has many useful roles in international law. But in the area of judgments as to the use of force, I don't think that they're sufficiently deferential or the development of the law has to be more deferential to state practice. Because when you look at these cases, in several instances, they've been overcome by state practice. And I think the Wall case is a classic example. Would there be anybody today who would say that any nation take the position that Article 51, other than maybe the Vatican or somebody, Cuba. would take the Cuba would take, Cuba would take the position that uh, you can only use Article 51 in the case of a, another state attacking you? I don't think that that's, that's going to align with any interpretation or any anticipated state practice. And along this line, uh, talking about what the young lady raised is anticipatory self-defense. You know, I think most states today, it used to just be the United States and Israel, but I think most states today, in one way or the other, with the possible exception of, you know, China, and I'm going to talk about China in a second, would not... Uh, we would agree that there is a concept of anticipatory self-defense, but it's impacted very uniquely by technology. There's a, when you read through the U.S. position, it talks about uh, the last window of opportunity, which is inconsistent with a strict imminence requirement that China and other countries are, are looking at. But that last window of opportunity may, is very important because in Thomas Friedman's book, he makes an observation. Thomas Friedman, uh, his, I'm talking about uh, Thank You for Being Late, if anybody's read that book, where he talks about technology has really trans, transformed relations because now we have small groups of people or even individuals uh, have the capability of wreaking great havoc. And he says, uh, you know, we now, we're entering an age where one of us can kill all of us. So the idea of waiting until that person is actually in the process of pressing the button may be too late, especially with the kinds of weapons that, that uh, you know, come on, come on, coming onto the scene. The problem with all this is that when you look at the structure of the ICJ, they are never going to be able to address in any sort of a timely manner these emerging issues. And so while I do think that there is a place, and we can talk in detail about some of the deficiencies in all these cases, I think uh, John, Professor Moore outlines them fantastically in his, uh, in his article, but I would also recommend that you read Sean Murphy's article about the structure of the ICJ. And I think it highlights very well the things that the ICJ can do well and the, and the things that, uh, that they don't do so well because of the, the necessary structure that you have to have for an international court. And so in other words, I don't see the ICJ ever evolving into the kind of institution 
that will provide the guidance and direction and norm building that we might see in our own courts with respect to, for example, criminal procedure. It's just not going to be reactive enough. And so we have to look at, uh, at norm building through other processes. And I never thought I would say this, but I think even um, you know, when, when states can agree on non-binding codes of conduct and so forth are more uh, productive in terms of norm building than waiting around for an ICJ case that is going to be A, dated by the time it actually comes out, but B, not necessarily informed by the technological developments, and C, can get wound up in, in political nuances that, that uh, Urim, you know, they've done what they can to try to eliminate political influences in the way they've structured the courts, the court. I don't think that they can do anymore. Uh, and so we're left with looking for some other opportunities. And so I think that we, we should not think of the ICJ in the same way that we think of the Supreme Court in this country. And secondly, I think we need to acknowledge that it's not going to be as reactive as we need it to be uh, for the challenges we're facing. And then thirdly, I think we have to think more about how we articulate state practice. You know, state practice is not a blank check because there are some states in their practice and maybe more than one state that is undesirable from the point of view of international law. But nevertheless, I think that in this particular area, we have to give more consideration to that. And with that, I'll, I'll, uh, I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much, Charlie. Our final distinguished panelist is Edwin Williamson. Edwin Williamson uh, has spent his, most of his professional career with uh, one of the top law firms in the United States, Sullivan and Cromwell. Uh, he joined Sullivan as an associate and uh, moved up to become a partner in 1971, and he is now a retired partner uh, in Sullivan and Cromwell. Of uh, particular importance to the panel today, uh, Edwin served as the legal advisor of the United States Department of State from September 1990 until January 1993. Um, his work has focused broadly on international law, including use of force issues, but also economic sanctions law, ethics rules applicable to government officials, and the immunities of foreign sovereigns and international organizations. The latter issue, which is uh, now squarely again uh, before the courts, uh, with a, or at least an effort uh, at cert in the Supreme Court with a split uh, in the uh, uh, circuit says to immunity of international organizations. Edwin? <coughs> thank you, John. And um, uh, like my fellow panelists, I want to thank you for putting this panel on um, and uh, including me. Um, I was looking at the list of panelists, and now that um, General Pete is not uh, joining us, I guess I'm the only panelist on the uh, program today who is not an academic. Um, I've 
never been in academia, and I've um, only been in government service outside the private practice for my two and a half years when I was at the State Department. Um, so I was, I'll admit to not being quite as deeply immersed in uh, some of these subjects as our academics and, um, and perhaps even plead guilty to a little rustiness on some of the issues. So this has been a great opportunity and a great excuse to try to get myself up to speed. Um, I can say that the biggest um, um, problem with the snowstorm is that um, I had to drive down from Washington this morning, and therefore I, um, and having already gotten up at a um, atypical hour for this lazy retired lawyer, um, I missed uh, Professor Deanstein's uh, lecture, which I think I would have enjoyed immensely having heard the last 10 minutes or so and the Q&A. Um, so, um, I was thinking about, you know, how does one, uh, one of the way, how does one approach this question of USAID Bellum and in the International Court of Justice? Uh, so, uh, should we discuss the uh, USAID Bellum rules as laid out in ICJ decisions, or should we discuss the impact of those rules on U.S. policy? The problem with the first approach is it would require a panel presentation of record-setting length. Uh, the subject is one of those typical international law subjects. It reminds me of a comment one of our lawyers at the State Department made when I asked her how a conference went. Uh, she replied that it was not enough that everything had been said or that everyone had said something, but they could not stop until everybody had said everything. <laughs> so seriously, though, I think John's uh, 2012 piece in the Virginia International Law Journal, which uh, Charlie referred to, really does provide a very sound summary and criticism of the ICJ's use ad bellum jurisprudence, and it would not make sense for me to try to do any better. The problem with the second approach is that it would result in a panel presentation of record-setting brevity. The short answer to the question of how much of the ICJ rules reflected in U U.S. policy is very little. Um, I was actually quite struck by this when I really sort of sat down and, and parsed, parsed through it. So, but let me just start out um, with a little quick little summary here. So the ICJ uh, jurisprudence, if, if, if followed, would severely limit the right of self-defense policies and practices of the United States and its close allies, such as the UK. So here's John's summary of these limitations from his 2012 article. Uh, John, um, being the purist that he is, um, uh, refers to defense rather than self-defense on the theory that the self is redundant. Um, but I'm going to, just because it doesn't sound right to me, <laughs> going to insert self before the word defense in each case. But uh, without, uh, for the slightest, um, uh, disparaging John's, I think, quite correct argument that it is, that it is redundant. Anyway, so these limitations are the right of self-defense does not include the right to sweep mines clandestinely and placed in an international waterway and targeting neutral shipping. That comes from the Corfu Channel case. There is no right of individual and collective self-defense against ongoing, quote, less grave aggression or, quote, indirect aggression. That comes from Nicaragua. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against indiscriminate 
attacks. That's implicit in the Iran uh, oil platform's decision. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against attacks from non-state actors, the Israeli wall decision. There's no right of individual and collective self-defense against insurgent or rebel attacks from the territory of a third state where that third state is simply unwilling or unable to stop the attacks. That's implicit in the Congo decision. There's no right of collective self-defense until an attack state has first publicly declared itself to be attacked and has publicly requested assistance, Nicaragua. The right of collective self-defense is not coterminous with the right of individual self-defense, implicit in Nicaragua. Necessity in use in Bellow law requires specific prior complaint about the role of a particular potential target of the defensive purpose, uh, the Iran platforms uh, decision, or platforms. Proportionality in use in Bellow law is a matter of weighing the d damage done in an attack against the damage done in an offensive response. And that's, the, again, the oil platforms. The basic documents articulating the self-defense policies of the George W. Bush administration and the Obama administration, the 2000, those are the 2002 uh, national security strategy put out by the Bush administration and the Obama administration's December 2016 report on the legal frameworks guiding the U.S. Of use of military force, uh, which is um, going to be the subject of the next panel, uh, reject or ignore each of these ICJ limitations. The rejections include the explicit claims of a right to use, self, for, use force in self-defense against non-state actors and against attackers in the territory of states that are unwilling or unable to stop such attacks. The robust assertions of the right to preemptive or anticipatory self-defense are inconsistent with the ICJ's restrictions on the use of force against, quote, less grave aggression or indirect aggression, or its imposition of formal notice or declaration requirements. Their articulation of the overlying principles of necessity and proportionality do not adhere to the narrow formulaic approaches of the ICJ. I'm not going into any more detail on these two policy articulations since, as I've mentioned, the next panel will be discussing the Obama Legal Frameworks Report and the uh, Trump's administ Trump administration's updating of it. Um, I would, however, like to digress for a moment and, and just make an observation about uh, where we are on these principles. So the Bush um, national security uh, statement is explained and uh, elaborated on um, in speeches by uh, the State Department legal advisor Will Taft and uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General for OLC John Yoo was a robust articulation of the doctrine of preemptive or anticipatory self-defense, which I would define as the use of military force in defense against an imminent as opposed to an actual attack. The Obama administration's legal frameworks report likewise takes a robust position on anticipatory self-defense. The Bush-Taft-U pronouncements 
were done in the context of defense against WMD attacks, whereas the Obama report is more focused on defense against terrorist attacks. The Obama report's policy with respect to anticipatory self-defense relies heavily on principle eight of and is otherwise inconsistent with former UK foreign and commonwealth legal advisor Sir Daniel Bethlehem's 16 principles published in 2012 in the American Journal of International Law. At the April 2016 ASIL meeting, uh, Obama State Department legal advisor Brian Egan articulated what was to be included in the Obama administration report, um, relying very heavily on um, uh, Sir uh, Daniel's uh, 16, 16 points, particularly principle, principle eight. Uh, this prompted Jack Goldsmith uh, uh, from Harvard uh, writing in Time Magazine and blogging on Lawfare Blog to argue, quote, and this was with respect to Brian's uh, ASL's, ASIL speech, Egan here embraces all of the tenets of Bush preemptive, preemption, though he discusses the principle in the context of force against non-state actor terrorists the rationale applies readily, and indeed less controversially, to states themselves. If anything, Egan announces a broader principle than Bush's, since he, unlike the Bush team, applies it in the context of threats short of the weapons of mass destruction that motivated uh, Bush. Uh, this, in terms of, prompted a retort from Sir Daniel uh, basically, I, I apologize to him for the brevity of this uh, summary, but anyway, but basically pushing against, back against any insinuation that he agreed with anything that Bush and you said. Um, I'm afraid that I don't have time to go into detail, but uh, suffice it to say that I, in my perception, it boiled down to Sir Daniel's complaint that the Bush-U argument could not be relied upon because they had misapplied uh, the use in bellow positions with respect to, among other things, the treatment of detainees. There are all wording differences between the Bethlehem Egan and the Bush U versions, with the former doing a bit more hand-wringing of the issue of what constitutes eminence. But I don't think there is any substantive difference. I think Goldsmith won the day with his point it is important to understand that Egan's speech, quote, it is important to understand that Egan's speech, which relies on Bethlehem's work, is so significant. When the international law-friendly Obama administration embraces preemption and can point to the support of such eminent jurists as Bethlehem, preemption becomes, quote, easier to swallow and, and gains broader acceptance and legitimacy. It is the Obama administration's articulation of the preemption principle, not the Bush articulation, not the Bush articulation, that will be important. Future presidents who want to use force in other nations won't invoke the doctrine from the fateful Iraq war. They will instead adopt the functionally identical principle that the Obama administration normalized and legitimated. That's the end of Jack's uh, quote. In any event, as to whether there is a difference between the, uh, the Egan-Bethlehem uh, position and the Bush-U position, 
Um, I think the Obama, uh, the, the Obama report adds a sentence um, based on, to its discussion of this, based on a 2010 speech at Harvard by John Brennan, who was then the assistant to the president for Homeland Security and became, uh, for Homeland Security and Counterterrorism and became later the CIA director. This is Senate says, as is now increasingly recognized by the international community, the traditional concept of what constitutes an imminent attack must be understood in light of the modern-day modern capabilities, techniques, and technological innovations of terrorist organizations. I think the addition of this sentence shrinks whatever differences one can imagine between the Bush and Obama positions. So let me return to the question which um, uh, said was sort of the main point, and that's the, and has been raised by um, a couple of other speakers already. So the self-defense policies of the United States largely ignore the restrictions that would be imposed by the ICJ jurisprudence in the field. Why, one might ask. I think the answer is complicated and, and controversial. And this is an explanation. It is not a selected, uh, I do not have a solution. Personally, I've come to the view that outside of a few narrow fields, international tri tribunals are not great lawmaking entities. In Nicaragua and the oil platform cases in particular, the ICJ clearly did not demonstrate their ability to handle complicated and disputed ev evidentiary issues and may even have allowed fraudulent evidence in for consideration. Then there's a the question of the quality of decisions. The ICJ jurisdiction in the Nicaragua case was, I was gonna use the word obliterated, but I prefer Professor Dunstein's much more elegant phrase of made mincemeat of by James Crawford, now an ICJ judge himself, in a paper delivered in connection with the celebration of the 25th anniversary of the bringing of the case. The dissents by the U.S. judge in the case, Steve Swabel, are brilliant in their refutation of the majority opinions. I'm not a great follower of the International Tribunal of the Law of the Sea, or ITLOS, but I read with amazement their decisions in the cases involving the provisional measures awarded in the detention of the Argentine Navy's tall ship in Ghana um, uh, and, the green, and on the Greenpeace Arctic surprise tax, attacks on the Russian oil platforms, as well as the jurisdiction decision in the South China Arbitration Panel. Um, but the arbitration panel decision was it for me. I've been on the narrow edge of being a supporter of accession for the, of U.S. accession to the uh, U.N. Convention on the Law of the Sea, but that tipped me over. Um, unlike China with respect to the South China Sea decision and Russia with respect to the Arctic Sunrise decision, as a rule of law country, we cannot ignore a dispute settlement panel decision that goes against us. Then there's also, I think, an integrity issue. Uh, Paul Reichler, uh, who brought the Nicaragua case and, uh, and the South China Sea case, um, makes a 
um, this comment in his 2001 Harvard International Law piece and uh, homage to Abe Shays. Um, and he discusses um, how, how the bringing of the Nicaragua case evolved. And on the edge, on the fringes of the UN meetings in 1983, quote, Another critical consultation took place at UN headquarters in New York. A meeting was arranged with one of the judges of the court from a non-aligned nation to acquire, and repeat that, consultation took place, a meeting was arranged with one of the judges of the court to inquire whether, in his opinion, the court would make an impartial judgment in a case brought by Nicaragua against the U.S., or whether the judges would feel obliged, for whatever reason, to favor the United States. The answer was unequivocal. The composition of the court was such that it could be counted upon to decide the case on its merits. When I raised the question of the propriety of such an ex parte communication, at a panel discussion a few years ago, Reichler said that the meeting was with a former ICJ judge. I'm, I'm almost tempted to ask how many here would have described that conversation without the word former in it. Mm -hmm. um, the, I think it's at least time that for Mr. Reichler to disclose the name of his, his confidant who must be dead by now. My content, confidence in multilateral tribunals was not boosted by an article I read last fall about ex parte communications between a judge and a party in a permanent court of arbitration, uh, arbitration between Croatia and Slovenia. I've seen no outcry about this gross violation of basic legal ethics. While the Croatians withdrew and the two offending parties were replaced, the tribunal carried on on its merry way and issued its decision. The final, um, uh, those are more sort of a personal things, but I also want to throw something out for that maybe is more of interest to, to this group. And I think one of the problems is the nature of customary international law. I think too much of what passes for so-called customary international law is not law, but just diplomacy by politically unaccountable lawyers. Edwin, thank you uh, very much. Uh, I'm now going to take about 10 minutes with the panel to throw a series of questions at the panel, and then uh, the last 15 minutes, uh, we will open it up for questions from the audience. The first of these is really to pin down the views of the panel as to the scope of lawful use of force uh, under use ad bellum. Uh, that is, what is the full scope of uh, uh, use of force under Article 2, subparagraph 4 of the UN Charter? And just a little bit of background, uh, it is generally accepted that uh, certainly the right of individual and collective defense is one of those. Though we can get into the question of anticipatory defense on that, that I think most of us accept if under appropriate circumstances. The second that is generally accepted would certainly be uh, authorized by the uh, United Nations Security Council, uh, or more broadly, if, if we had time to go into it, 
uh, United Nations action. Um, the third uh, that was mentioned this morning by uh, 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 Professor uh, Denstein, which I think is uh, certainly one of those, and yet not usually on the list that uh, international law professors teach their students, is consent by a sovereign state. Um, and the fourth and fifth are things that are somewhat, um, uh, let's say, controversial, even though I firmly believe that uh, they are a part of the charter, since they are uh, actually uh, come right out of the language of the charter itself. And one of those is a limited ability of uh, regional arrangements to use force, provided the action is not inconsistent with the purposes and principles of the Charter and is not enforcement action. And the final point uh, relates to, of course, the debate about uh, some settings of uh, uh, protection of nationals or more broadly humanitarian intervention. That is, is there a category, quote, below the threshold of Article 2.4? For those of you interested that have a copy of this article that appears uh, on uh, pages uh, 910 to 9.15, but I'd like really to ask the panelists at this point, uh, what of those five uh, do they accept, or perhaps we'll make it uh, a shorter conversation, which of the five uh, might they not accept uh, at this point? And let's just start uh, same order. Mike? Okay, can I take the liberty to make one predicate comment on that? Surely. So, Ed and I didn't talk about this, but if you're a law student and you'd like to cut to the chase, I'm sitting here with my tabbed page, which is exactly what he read, pages 947 and 948 of this article. It's a great summary of the body of law, the flow from those cases. There it is tabbed. When I tab it, you know it's a good summary. I, I think the larger question, the predicate to your question, and I know you agree with me on this because you taught me this, but I think it's more correct, is to remember, and the problem with the framing of the ICJ is that they're looking at these issues as a matter of treaty law. Article 51 says not that the right of self-defense is created by the charter, but that it is inherent, it is sovereign. What we're talking about is the aspects of sovereignty and appropriate sovereignty. So that's really the question. It's not what is the Article 51 exception and what is the meaning of 2.4. The question is, what are appropriate sovereign uses of force that don't violate the normative overarching prohibition of Article 2.4? That's a different question than the way the ICJ typically frames it. And that's why it's important that they so often avoid the question by saying Article 2.4 is not implicated here. We're not even going to address the real substantive merits. Um, I, I think I fall in line with all those being permissible with the exception of humanitarian intervention. I think humanitarian intervention is, is still just too controversial, just too debated. Um, where there is isolated state practice, I did a, a piece one time, a law review piece, um, there are always mixed motives in what people commonly cite as humanitarian intervention cases. Uh, the one possible example people like to use is, of course, uh, Kosovo, which is distinguishable for lots of reasons. Um, there's just no really good examples of humanitarian intervention until Libya comes along 
And then you read the U.S. framing of that, and Libya doesn't count as humanitarian intervention precisely because of the way it was done and the, the, the vagueness of the dialogue. So of the, of the uses that you articulated, um, I think I, I obviously can state consent, but there is a new issue on the, on the boundaries which you didn't point out, which I think is controversial, which is the issue of quasi-consent. You know, Syria, we're not, we're not consulting them with respect to uses of force on Syria, okay? The French didn't really consult with Mali much, except to say, we're coming, see our planes flying over with respect to that. So I think that's the emerging issue. It's not just, nobody would really debate pure consent. I think the emerging issue is quasi-consent in states that really don't have territorial control or at best very loose territorial control. And that's where I think we need to have a clear debate. But classic consent, that's a pretty easy case. Charlie? I would pretty much agree with uh, Mike. Uh, I would point out that on the issue of consent, I think actually, doesn't actually Deeks have, a, have an article on that because there are other issues associated with consent. For example, if the, the receiving state consents to you coming in for you to do something that is illegal under their law and how does all that work out. So I think that there are more issues there. But for the law students, I think that, that one of the key issues is the way the United States looks at the triggering of self-defense. Most nations in the world think that there is a, believe that there is a difference between the words armed attack as used in Article 51 and use of force as used in Article 2 sub 4. The United States takes the position that there is no difference and that any use of force triggers the right of self-defense. That's interesting, but then all of the examples that they, practically all of the examples with one exception that I'm aware of, would actually meet the armed attack equivalency standard. And the one exception to that is if you look at chapter 16 of the DOD Law of War Manual, there's an example in there about um, the uh, uh, supply system computer that is taken out of, uh, of use because of a cyber attack that is not destructive in the way that, say, the Talon Manual interprets destruction. So I think that, that you have that issue. The one thing that, that I find kind of interesting when we look at these, these legal modalities is recent, the recent case in the UK where you have a situation where a foreign country, Russia, is alleged to have uh, killed a, or injured, tried to kill a, an individual and his daughter through the use of a sophisticated uh, chemical weapon. Uh, Alex Whiting and uh, Ryan Goodman have written an interesting article on in just security where they say, well, we ought to prosecute uh, Putin in the ICC for a war crime. And when you start peeling that back, what they do correctly, albeit I think somewhat illogically, is they make the point that the standard for the triggering of the Gene application of the Geneva Conventions is much below the use of force, let alone the use of armed force. And so you could have a, reading the Geneva Conventions and especially the ICJ commentary on it, you could have an armed conflict between the UK and Russia 
but the UK would not be authorized to act in self-defense because the triggering activity, the injuring of two people in their country is not sufficiently egregious to, uh, to warrant use of force in, in self-defense. And I think that that's the kind of thing that uh, if you're a lawyer, you can parse your way through the logic of that, but it's not the kind of thing that I think enhances uh, respect for the law or even an understanding of the law. So uh, when we start talking about that uh, and, and which of these things do we accept, I think we may have a new, a new category that we have to think about. The one issue that I think is more controversial among certain lawyers than it is with any state is uh, the law of rescue. In other words, if you read Thomas Rue's analysis where he basically says that countries do not have, under international law, do not have the right to rescue their nationals that are in peril and they have to use some other means of doing that. I don't think, I, I'm open, but I don't think that there is a state on planet Earth, can't talk about other solar systems, but on planet Earth, that if they had the capability and their citizens were in peril, that they would not use force to try to rescue them if the alternative is those, those individuals would be, would be killed. But when you read Tom Roos's argument, you, you parse through it, you see where he's coming from. It's just not going to align with the state practice of anybody. Edwin? Um. Uh, I think I'm going to sort of step back and say that I've, um, I'm very uncomfortable with any use of force in both the international and the U.S. domestic constitutional uh, context that um, is not in defense of a vital uh, individual or collective national interest. So that's what determines, so I don't think the absence of a provision in the UN Charter, I mean, if the UN, forgetting the complications of the interpretation of 2-4, but assume that the, um, the Charter does not say, um, does not have a flat ban on the use of force except and specify the exceptions. I don't think that means that you can use force. Right. Uh, so I think, as I say, the use of force has to be based on this concept of defense. And um, so I'm not sure I understand sufficiently the regional example, but it sounds to me as if there, there would be some defense context in that. The humanitarian, um, I don't think fits into that. And um, in fact, I argued in the, and not where anybody was listening, but um, um, at least I was prepared to make the argument that um, in the Kosovo context, that it would have been mu a much less um, stretching of the facts and the law if the Clinton administration had um, and the Europeans in particular, who basically made this argument in the, in the media, uh, that the need to go into Kosovo was based on a uh, defense against vital national interest, um, the threat to Europeans, blah, 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 uh, as opposed to coming up with a concept of a humanitarian uh, law. Um, 
and, and then, but in the, uh, then on the question of the armed attack versus uh, the armed attack uh, language in the charter, I think is just not, I mean, although I'm a, kind of a strict constructionist and original, I'm also a originalist, um, um, I'm a strong believer in uh, that there is a right of preemptive or anticipatory self-defense um, and I think that is a complicated, nuanced, factual question. Uh, the one thing that I think did come out of the uh, Bush, you, and uh, Taft to some extent uh, uh, side that um, I don't think has been accepted by the Bethlehem, Egan, uh, Obama uh, crowd is, the, is John Yu's um, uh, uh, quite clear um, position, which I agree with, that uh, the question of eminence is not a temporal concept that's not limited to just a question of time. Um, so um, the, on the question of consent, um, I'm a, I got in just at the end, or at least of the question, um, to uh, Dr. Denstein and on that, on consent. And I'm a little baffled by the focus on consent um, if you have an acceptance of the unwilling or unable. I'm, I'm not sure where you need to rely on cons consent if you have a situation where the host state is either unwilling or unable uh, to, to take the action necessary. Can I also digress on one sure, quick sure. point on uh, Charlie's um, uh, question of, of cyber, uh, cyber issues being an act of war. Um, uh, Charlie, are you part of the Talon group? No. Okay, um, you sound like one. <laughs> it, um, um, I think that's is a wrong uh, concept. I think most, if we're talking about cyber activities, we're talking about what the Russians did in the context of the 2016 election, just focus on that. That's not an act of war. That's, counter, that's, that's espionage. So let's treat it as an espionage issue. Let's analyze it that way. You know, if it goes over, you know, bounds, and uh, at some point there certainly are some espionage activities that can become an act of war. Um, I mean, easy case if you get into uh, uh, physical destruction of infrastructure, uh, physical change of uh, infrastructure, I think, sort of moves into that um, where you, you can really start thinking in terms of some um, deterrent of, uh, actions that are being done that sound like uh, uses of force. But, um, but generally, I think it, uh, I would not assume that the cyber activity is an act of war. Well, just to be clear, I agree with that. It was espionage. That's why I'm contrasting it with what I read yesterday, that there are some people calling it an attack and wanting it to be considered an attack. And I'm just suggesting that there are consequences to, you know, words do matter in the law. Okay, I, well, I misunderstood. And, but but <coughs> thanks for letting me clarify that, because I will say this. There may be some upper limit where there is such manipulation and such damage to democratic processes through the sophisticated use of technology and analysis 
in crunching big data, where we might have to think about that in, in a different way. But, but, but merely, for example, uh, I asked Adam Schiff this very question. I said, if we had the opportunity to influence the election in a hostile state by releasing factual information, remember the DNC uh, emails were factual, very anti-Catholic, I might add, as a Catholic, but uh, to influence an election, would we do it? What do you think his answer was? Of course. He says, well, I can't talk about oh, I you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I was shifting. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he did say, well, you know, historically we've done stuff like that, but uh, something along those lines. But, but you're absolutely right. I think, I, I think we ought to be very careful about what we choose to call an attack, what we choose to call a violation of sovereignty. You know, one of the big issues now in the whole cyber world is that these below threshold things to include practically espionage might be a violation of sovereignty, ergo an offense against international law. Be careful what you pray for because you might actually get it. And if, if that became the norm, keep in mind that the Chinese do not even accept that international law governs right. cyber war. There is an excellent 20-page uh, monograph by Julian Q. Uh, I think it was talked about on Lawfare and there's a link, Hudson, somebody put it out. Yep. But it's really good and very insightful on this particular issue of how the Chinese view USAID Bellum and it's very limited. Partly because of exactly what, what Edwin said, they do not want to open the door in any way to anything that might permit the interference with internal affairs, because obviously they're thinking about Tibet, they're Mongolia, Taiwan, all, all sorts of things that they consider to be their internal affairs. So that, I think, is something that we have to look at in our discussion of USAID Bellum. Yeah, and let me, let me pull this out of the ether, pun intended, um, and get back to the ICJ. If we're asking the question, what are the appropriate bounds of sovereign prerogatives? because that's the right question here, that's what we're talking about, is the difference between appropriate exercises of sovereignty for X purpose, Y purpose, rescue of nationals, et cetera, and charter prohibitions, I would submit, and this is heretical, so let me turn the cameras off, I would submit the ICJ is the wrong body to turn to to answer that question. I agree. That's not what they do. Uh, that's what they think they do a lot of times. And, and here I like to quote, I go back to Judge Aheron Barak, I like the way he thinks about it. Charlie raised the point, and this was subtle, some of y'all missed this, but this was an important point, that in U.S. jurisprudence and in the jurisprudence of many other states, you simply would not get judicial analysis or resolution of these core issues because it would be dismissed either on the grounds of sovereign prerogative or in our system political question or active state doctrine. There are any number of ways, or non-justiciability, any number of ways of handling that in our own system where we say, in essence, this is the appropriate lane, the appropriate discretion, the appropriate role for judicial bodies. That is the appropriate role and discretion for political bodies. That's a political question. You want to talk about the War Powers Act? Go litigate that in the halls of Congress and extend that through the funding debates. I want, to, I want to point out to you that the ICJ does not work on that premise. And Aaron Barak is exactly right. He was asked the question about proportionality. Why do Israeli courts 
not follow this minute much of that same logic and they start to analyze targeting issues etc and, and his answer is exactly right he says those are issues for commanders and politicians it is our job to guard the boundaries the icj would never say make a similar comment and so i would submit that when we're talking about the boundaries of sovereignty it's a question of state practice and agreement between states just could, a could, brief clarification on the uh, despicable uh, Russian intervention in our election, uh, which I think that uh, the panelists would actually agree with, but just for clarifying it for the record, uh, it is neither uh, armed attack on the United States, uh, nor is it intelligence gathering, which they also use cyber for. It was a despicable effort to influence the United States political uh, system and to harm the United States uh, culturally at uh, a variety of other uh, ways. It was not intelligence gathering, which is one of the things they do, just as we also see uh, crime uh, on the Internet. So I think we need to be uh, uh, careful about uh, how we uh, categorize uh, the individual uh, uh, activities uh, on it. Well, uh, I had initially. Can, uh, can I push back just yes, slightly? Can, uh, slightly. Right slightly. It, I, I do think that uh, it was an intelligence activity. It might not be espionage as we, as we might have historically thought about. But along the lines of thinking about espionage, as you know, generally speaking, it's not a violation of international law. But here again, technology may have changed things because in the old world, uh, you might have been able to go in and steal you know, uh, a couple files worth of uh, information. But now we have a situation where China went and, or North Korea or whoever it might have been, stole 24 million records of Americans. That is only something that could happen in the modern era. And now you, you also, another feature of the modern era is that you have the ability to crunch that big data. So, Espionage has exponentially been uh, empowered through technology, and it may be that at some point we have to rethink this idea that, well, it's just espionage, everybody does it. Uh, a, it's, it's more than, it's not espionage, it's not your grandfather's espionage, and that secondly, it can have effects on all kinds of people for the rest of their lives, and it uh, hold people hostage in a way. So maybe we need to think about that. I'm not sure what the answer is, but maybe we need to think Charlie, about it. Charlie, to push back again, I think the distinction which you drew is exactly one of the reasons why we may need to make the distinction I made. As you point out, intelligence gathering and intelligence generally is not in violation of international law. Uh, in fact, what the Soviet Union was doing in an effort, or Russia today, still uh, stuck in the Cold War, maybe we're having it again, uh, but in any event, uh, the, what they were doing was something that is illegal under international law uh, in an effort to uh, engage in uh, uh, and harm the United States uh, culturally in a variety of other ways and to create uh, divisiveness in the United States. This may well, just be an issue where we have a difference. But, but is I it a violation not, of international law? I do not regard law? it as lawful uh, by the part of Russia. 
Is Voice of America, is Voice of America a violation of international uh, law? I've, did, did President Obama violate international law when he went to the UK and encouraged them to vote right. against Brexit? I don't think it was. It's now, the, of, the difference may be disinformation and the manipulation of information, but it's another thing, A, if it's done openly, but B, when you're talking about the release of accurate information, you know, in, undisputably, what did the New York Times do in the New York Times case? You know, everybody celebrated. They released classified information about the Vietnam War. But, uh, you know, I, I think there is a difference between, I do think that manipulation, for example, they get into the voting machines and all that, that that's a whole different ballgame. Uh, By the way, they were trying to do that, Charlie. And nor were they simply releasing uh, correct information. Uh, they were creating a whole series of sites that actually uh, were fake news in the worst sense of the term, uh, deliberately. But, to but does that violate international law? Other, uh, issues. You and I are going to differ on this. If you yeah. believe that that what they engaged in was lawful under international law, well, I'm not I saying that. Take, I'm just I'm asking the question. About that. And but, and if it is, then we got to look in the mirror to see what what we would do. Oh, well, I think there I think there are considerable differences between. Uh, an open voice of America or something of that sort, and basically the kinds of activities which they undertook against the election. In any event, we're getting, we're getting off the uh, uh, structure here. You'll notice, by the way, I had, I had four questions I were going to ask this group. I should have realized that with such a, a very able uh, group that I should give them 30 seconds each uh, in response to each one of these. Mm -hmm. But it's now open to the audience. Uh, we have about an extra 10 minute okay let's let's do uh let's take the full time on q a until they're exhausted uh, from the audience it's now open yes sir if the icj is not the appropriate body to address the issues with um use of vellum and cyber capabilities or other potential emerging technologies um, then what are the appropriate bodies to address those questions? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and I, and I threw one out. You know, we're starting to see, for example, with space, the code, codes of conduct, and norm building in that way. So in other words, I think we have to look at that, taking into account uh, state practice and so forth. So I just don't think in the area of technology that the ICJ is going to be timely enough, expert enough, uh, to provide other than much after the fact guidance or opinions. I wouldn't even call it guidance because by the time it comes out, I think in many instances that it'll be overtaken by the technology. So I, I really think that norm building, we need to look at other ways. Opinion of jurists may be important. Uh, one of the things Mike Schmidt wrote about uh, before the DOD manual came out, and he co-authored it with somebody, um, I can't remember who, is that the lack of United States opinion of jurists was really hurting us in the, um, you know, establishing the norms for cyber. I think part of the answer was, I'm not sure the United States knew what they wanted the norms to be, given the capabilities of the United States relative to other parties. But nevertheless, I think that's, that's one way. Uh, I wish I were smarter to come up with, the, with another way, but I don't think an adjudicative body as the way the ICJ is currently right. organized would be reactive enough. Can I add to that? I think, you know, it's, it's, it's the larger question the core international lawyers will ask is about the changing character of international law, 
right? In the classic sense, international, custom international law was deductive. We looked out. We, it was a deductive process. Modern custom is more inductive, much more instantaneous, much faster to develop, and therefore, therefore, consequentially, much more subject to abuse. You know, you can't swing a stick without hitting some lawyer who will say, ah, that's international law. That's customary international law. So I think what you really have to do is use the forum that's most likely to get real articulations of state opinion juris. And, and ICJ is not that, uh, to go to your question. Uh, you know, the Sixth Committee, the ILC processes, there's lots of ways to do that where you're going to formally put states on notice on a particular issue, whether it's cyber or election interference or the developing state of uh, the right to go do, as Joram would say, law enforcement on, you know, sorry, Sixth Committee, ILC, put states on the dime and make them answer publicly. Sometimes you see some of this in Security Council debates, but that's what you look for, are real articulations of state opinion juris, in my view, which, which then marry with state practice. That's how you show custom. You don't just engage in a lex forenda exercise mm -hmm. of what we want the law to be. Well, also, um, I think the, the basically what you do when you have an issue like this is you, as I think the panelists have, have indicated, you create the rules by getting together and agreeing on them. The question is, okay, so you've agreed on these rules. What are the consequences of a failure to follow these rules? And the, in some cases, it's possible to come up with something that works fairly well. And I think the, uh, the WTO is an example where it probably does work okay. But the, the more you have a, a problem, on a, a, where the rules inhibit sovereignty, the greater the problem you're going to have with any kind of um, supranational body making a decision on this. And that's what we, and um, I think it just boils down to a question of how much one wants to agree to the, a supranational body, but particularly an imperfect one, making rules that affect uh, sovereignty. And the as part of my point is that the Chinese and the Russians said, we don't care about that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they walk away from the Arctic Sunrise decision, they walk away from the South China Sea. Thing. We've kind of trapped out, we will trap ourselves into that, say, oh, no, 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 we believe in the rule of law, and we believe that the ICJ is going to be perfect and correct each time. Fact of the matter, they're not. So we just shouldn't agree to that. We should not be subject to the jurisdiction of it. If we have a boundary dispute with somebody that we want to have a voluntary submission to jurisprudence to solve something that the ICJ can solve, that's fine. I wouldn't keep them on a permanent payroll, but other than that. Next Charlie, question. Mike yes. Schmidt authored that, uh, co-authored that article with Sean Watts at Creighton okay. University, just for reference. My question is about the requirement of violence in the USAD bellum. I was persuaded by Professor Denstein's book on war, aggression, and self-defense that no amount of political or economic coercion or presumably information manipulation could implicate the USAD bellum use of force. But then, General Dunlap, your comment about cyber suggested that maybe that's going to be different in that context. Could you talk about that? Well, two things about Number one, Professor Dinstein is exactly correct in, about the current state of the law. I'm just suggesting that in an interdependent 
global world where you have technology empowering small groups and nations to do things which were unheard of 10 years ago, that we might have to rethink that because of the way uh, in an interdependent world, uh, I've had some students write on this, if the Russians decide to cut off gas shipments to you know, certain countries and people are, are freezing to death, what, what happens there? You know? Or water disputes, if you, if you look around the world, water disputes, you know, in theory, would not trigger a right to self-defense, but when people are actually dying in your country, that, that may change things. Same thing with cyber. I think that even this exploitation of information may get to such an egregious level that nations will respond to it, even if it doesn't fit, even if you don't have a bodies in the street. Um, I'm not saying that's the law now, but I can see, I, I, I would not be flabbergasted if there was a situation sometime in the future where, where that happened and a nation responded asymmetrically, so to speak, to, to something that doesn't have violence with some sort of use of force uh, that we, we may see that in the future. Yoram Densi. Ma'am, uh, to tell you the truth, I was somewhat confused by several segments of the discussion. So let me start with some uh, obvious uh, truth. You know, in the city of Jefferson, it may be a good idea to do it. Number one, not everything is illegal. Number two, not everything that is illegal is necessarily illegal under international law. It can be illegal under domestic law, but not under international law. Number three, not everything that is illegal under international law is necessarily uh, related to the use of force, to the unlawful use of force. Number four, not everything which is an unlawful use of force is necessarily an armed attack. Uh, I know that the United States is not very clear on this issue, but allow me to remind you that there are matters which are called in Latin de minimis. That is to say some slight use of force, somebody using a firearm, shooting across the border and hitting a tree. That's an armed attack. Clearly not, not even in the view of the United States. Then not everything which is illegal as an armed attack is necessarily illegal under the use in bello and so forth. And if you use these five general truths, you can resolve several of the matters that, were, that have arisen in this discussion. Uh, for example, espionage may be illegal under domestic law. It's not illegal under international law. It may be a good idea for uh, Charlie or anybody else to rethink the, the matter. Rethinking is always recommended that does not make law. It makes perhaps uh, uh, the potentiality of law in the future. In the meantime, any form of espionage under international law is not illegal. Then therefore, if you move to cyber, for example, most cyber relates indeed to intelligence gathering. And as such, it is not illegal at all. Not every cyber uh, use or manipulation amounts to an attack. Not every attack is an armed attack. And in fact, it's important to bear in mind that only in the very rare occasions can a cyber attack amount to an armed attack. 
I've given the examples and they've been used ever since, way back in 1999 in the first conference on cyber attacks held in this country in uh, Newport. At that time it was not even called cyber attacks, it was called CNAs, you know, computer yep. network computer attacks. Network. And the example that I gave was, number one, you can gain control of a computer in an airliner flying out there above the clouds and simply manipulate the altitude meter in such a way that the pilot will crash because he thinks that he is in altitudes of, say, a thousand feet, whereas in fact it's zero in fog situations, snow situations, so forth. And everybody on board gets killed. That's an armed attack without any doubt. But, but, but more importantly, gain control of the nu nuclear reactor of another party and bring about a meltdown. You can cause Hiroshima without having nuclear weapons of your own. Yeah, That's but, not an armed but attack. We, we all agree with that. We all agree with that, that when there's a manifestation in, in death or destruction, that that's the equivalent of an armed attack and would trigger the right to self-defense. All I'm suggesting is that uh, with the abilities now to crunch data, to gather data, it's exponentially different from the from the context in which the rule against espionage and espionage activities emerged. And so I'm just suggesting that we may have to rethink it. And let me give you another example, Bitcoin. I just wrote a piece on can you target Bitcoin? What do you think the answer to that is? Can you target it in a way that doesn't, doesn't kill anybody, doesn't destroy anything? There's a question, may or, or can't? Uh, physically can with quantum computers, but let's assume yeah. that, that, you, that you can. Is that an attack? And the answer under current international law is no. Most people would say anyway, because it's just the manipulation of data. It doesn't manifest itself in physical destruction, because Bitcoin doesn't exist in physical, and it's not the currency of any state right now. I think uh, That's what I was Marshall thinking. Islands is, is considering making it their currency. But what's going to, a couple years from now, when people are actually using Bitcoin, and it will have real consequences if it's attacked. Are people going to say, well, you know, that's not an attack. We can't respond to it. You know, we have to maybe get a UN Security Council resolution. I'm not so sure that's going to be the case. So, yeah. so I, I do think that we have to reevaluate progressively uh, what, whether we really want to stick, and Professor Dinstein is 100% correct in that most international lawyers today would say that you need to have some kind of physical harm or destruction or loss of uh, use of the computer in, in a unique way. I'm just not sure that's going to be the future. Let me quote an eminent scholar on this, because I think Yoram is exactly right. Carson the butler from Downton Abbey, right? <laughs> What's the point of living if we never change? He just set out the precise legal analysis and the framework by which we would actually answer these questions. I assure you, I would go on a limb here, I'll, bet, I'll give you my watch if I'm wrong. If the ICJ assessed those issues, they would not do such a thoughtful, careful, sequential, reasoned analysis. So we're back to kind of where we started. Charlie may be right. This is why I don't do hypotheticals in class, you know? But the point is you've got to approach them as very careful technical questions. The right question is, the Article 2.4 article prohibits the use of force. That's the right question. 
What is a permissible use of force? What is an impermissible use of force? Because the general prohibition, you're, you're pushing against the general prohibition, which to reiterate is a use Kogan's norm. So what we're talking about are, Im, are permissible uses of other state power that don't rise to the level of being a prohibited use of force under 2-4. That's a big debate to have. And I think it's an important debate, not one you're going to get at the ICJ. Yoram, we'll come back to you as part of this discussion. Right. Uh, Charlie, you can rethink everything to your heart content. That does not create new international law. The Bitcoin uh, scenario that you gave us is no different than counterfeiting, uh, say, U.S. dollars by foreign nation. Is this legal? It is not. Is this an armed attack? It is not. All Just I'm as intervening in the election in the United States is not an armed attack, no matter how you cut the, the cake. It's not an armed attack. Just on and the Bitcoin issue, there's a physical limitation to what you can do in counterfeiting, and you are talking about the currency of a, of a nation state, not something that doesn't have any, any, physical, any physicality to it. So, I, I mean, because I do think, I can foresee in the future that a state where Bitcoin, I use Bitcoin for all cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies become so embedded in somebody's um, you know, economy that its destruction or devaluation, remember it's easy to devalue mm -hmm. cryptocurrency just by, you can announce, hey, we have a way of destroying it and you're, you, you cost people billions of dollars. So I, I do think that, and that we're going to see this evolution. And we saw that in the, in the Nuremberg trials. Do you remember what they said in the very beginning when they were talking about, because prior to Nuremberg, the idea of holding individuals personally culpable for war crimes was actually a new idea. It was usually nations that were held. And I think I'm quoting from memory, which I, it's like doing math in public, but uh, the court said something, or the tribunal said something like, uh, the law of war is not static. It must, it evolves to meet the needs of the, the world or something like that. And I think that's what, so in other words, Professor Dinstein is 100% correct on where we are now. And Mike's 100% correct in that we need to make clear what the current law is versus what, where it might be and, and so forth. But I would also suggest to you that you could have a very quick evolution of the law in the area of high technology based on the consequences. And you will have state practice that isn't going to be, they're not going to be flipping through the Talon manual to see what they can or cannot do when, they, when their country has been devastated economically or in some other way that isn't in the traditional uh, harm. Yoram, would you like to? Well, yeah. Right, I was interrupted. Yeah, please do. As you know, okay. Uh, Charlie, quoting from memory is always hazardous. <laughs> the International Military Tribunal actually stated categorically that war crimes trials had been held prior to Nuremberg on the basis of the Hague regulations of 1907, even though the, the Hague regulations do not say that violation carries criminal responsibility. Nevertheless, war crimes trials have been held. The only new aspect of uh, the International Military Tribunal judgment, and of course it's a big element, is the issue of crimes against peace. This is the first time that crimes against peace were uh, 
regarded as crimes under international law, and the same applies to crimes against humanity, but not to all crimes, surely. All crimes had precedence before. Point taken. But uh, com coming back to it, there is always a tendency when you don't like the policy of a particular country to regard it as an armed attack. This is dangerous. And you should always ask yourself, is it really an armed attack? Because more often than not, it is not. It is perhaps a violation of international law, but not an armed attack. Finally, you know, in my general thoughts, remember, even if it is illegal, if it is an armed attack, even if it's a violation of the boat use at Bellum and use in Bellum, the question is, should it be brought before the International Court of Justice? Is this the ideal body to deal with it? And the answer, more often than not, is no. Much better to bring it before the Security Council where it belongs. Uh, the International Court of Justice has, uh, unfortunately, a tendency to move into fields where it is very weak and where you can foresee in advance that it's not going to advance international law. Uh, only this week, the International Court of Justice decided to resolve the issue of a conflict, not armed conflict, conflict between Bolivia and Chile as to whether Chile should cede to Bolivia part of its territory so that Bolivia will cease to be a landlocked country and will have access to the coast. Now I'm asking you, suppose that the International Court of Justice, after months if not years of deliberation, will say yes, Chile should do it. Will Chile observe the judgment? Is there any chance of Chile deciding to cede parts of its territory? Now the same is true of Nicaragua. The problem is not that when we read the judgment, you know, the final product of the court in 1986, we said, wow, this was a mistake to go there. Everybody said that it was a mistake to go there. The United States said we are not collaborating with you since 1984. What was the point of going into what was clearly simply an opportunity to collide head on with the United States to bring about the withdrawal of the United States from the court and to diminish the reputation of the court. The court, unfortunately, has political considerations in mind, and uh, these political considerations in which it has in mind often outweigh logic. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next uh, question, we have time, let's say, for uh, <clears throat> one or two more questions. Sounds to me like, yes, go ahead. Well, may I ask a question of the order? Sure. <laughs> I'm going to ask a, 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 a Professor Denstein. Are you saying that counterfeiting does not give a right of self-defense that where one could use, among other things, force to counter it? Well, counterfeiting in peacetime is without any doubt illegal under international law. Mind you, it's not illegal in wartime. This is permissible in wartime. And uh, in, during World War II, it was done by both sides. Right. So the practice of states is clear. But even when it is illegal, it is not an armed attack. It may be a good idea to hold the conference on the definition of an armed attack. Unfortunately, the phrase is, the phrase is not defined in Article 51 of the Charter. Right. <laughs> uh, there is now a definition of aggression in uh, the... the uh, Kampala uh, Amendment to the Rome Statute of the International Court of Justice based on the 1974 General Assembly definition of aggression. 
most people would say that the definition of aggression coincides with the definition of an armed attack. Is that the case? We do not know for sure. But in any event, nobody has suggested that counterfeiting comes into, into that. An armed, an armed attack usually means either invasion or in any event an intrusion into the territory of another state, which is done deliberately, or it is something that uh, relates to uh, human casualties and significant property destruction. And uh, therefore, uh, many, many aspects of cyber uh, warfare, as they are called, are neither warfare, they are cyber, but they are not warfare, and in any event, they have nothing to do with an armed attack. And uh, as for Talim, uh, I don't know whether there is anybody here from the DOD, but I visited the, the Pentagon in December and was somewhat surprised to hear that they are completely opposed to the Talim manual which is supposed to represent the NATO view. No, no, what kind no, of a NATO no, view no, it is it that the United States is not behind? On that, on the technical point, um, I think Joram's ex exactly right. But that was one of the things, one of the small successes of U.S. diplomacy in Kampala, which was to get the clear language in, in, in the statute itself, not in the elements, not in, but in the statute itself, that we're talking about the crime of aggression, not the act of aggression. And to make it very clear on the text, Somebody said this earlier, maybe it was Joram, that the Security Council is the appropriate body jurisprudentially to determine an act of aggression, hence, in my view, an armed attack. That what, what Kampala does is, is prescribe the, the parameters of the crime of aggression for the sui generis purposes of the ICC. So don't, that's why I cautioned earlier in my comments, don't conflate the two and say, oh, we got Kampala, now we got a Rome Statute 8 bis, so we've sort of addressed these issues and we've empowered the court. You can't make that mistake. Incidentally, that's also true of humanitarian intervention, John. As but you know, following Kosovo, the Secretary General appointed a high-level uh, group in order to study the matter. Right. The report of the high-level group came before the Security Council in an unprecedented summit meeting on the head of state level, which uh, I do not have to tell you. Uh, when it came up with a unanimous declaration, that's customary international law. If anything, is customary international law when all the heads of state agree unanimously on something. And they are the ones that uh, actually uh, coined the new phrase, responsibility to protect, known for short as R2P. And it says clearly, yes, there is a responsibility to protect. However, the responsibility to protect belongs in the uh, courtyard of the Security Council and only the Security Council can decide in a binding manner to have R2P, i.e. humanitarian intervention. And therefore, humanitarian in anyone who supports humanitarian intervention today is behind the times. Uh, just a quick clarification. Talon 2.0 is not a NATO product. NATO contributed to it, but it is not an expression I think it says it right in the, in the manual that it's not an expression, e A, of NATO or B, of any particular state. And that's why, C, you'll see in the DOD Law of War manual that it takes a different position. And D, the DOD Law of War manual in and of itself says it's only binding on the Department of Defense and doesn't necessarily represent the opinion of, I think it's a spurious statement in there because it's if it manifests itself in state practice, it's going to, you know, become representative of the United States. 
Yoram, I'm going to have to rise to at least one of the, uh, the points. You're probably right that I'm old enough to be well behind the times, but uh, <laughs> I'd like to, um, uh, to defend humanitarian intervention um, because I firmly believe in it, as do many uh, uh, professors of law in the United States uh, for many years, including, as you know, Myers McDougall and others that uh, strongly have supported it. As you know, it's the official position of the United Kingdom uh, judgment. Um, as you probably know, it was debated in the United States uh, Department of State between the policy planning staff at the time of Kosovo and the legal advisor's office, with the policy planning staff, in my judgment, saying quite properly uh, we should have moved forward, saying that humanitarian intervention under appropriate circumstances was correct. Uh, it was supported by the legal advisor of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff as a better way to deal with the issue uh, in Kosovo. And as to the uh, discussions uh, in the Security Council in relation to this, uh, you and I know that there are many, many um, statements uh, made by international institutions and discussions that in fact don't reflect international law uh, concerning, uh, you said, Bellum, including many of those we've just been looking at in the International Court of Justice. But if we look at this question of uh, what was really happening in the UN, uh, I believe the answer is they were authorizing uh, a responsibility to protect, which, as you've indicated correctly, was solely uh, something for the United Nations itself. We saw this in Libya, the, whether good or bad, uh, a new concept, but it's really basically just based on Security Council authorization. I would differentiate strongly responsibility to protect from humanitarian intervention and the requirements for that. But you and I agree on so many, so many different things, uh, Yoram, that uh, there, there may be one small one here on the potential of humanitarian intervention by individual states not authorized by the Security Council where we have a difference. Let me just add, humanitarian intervention per se, not R2P. Humanitarian intervention right. came before the Institute of International Law, which right. rejected it by a lopsided majority. Right. Out of hand. And uh, that is a fair representation of uh, international law on this planet. Well, what, what I find sad is they're just a little bit behind the, uh, uh, you know, where the world is going uh, in relation to this. And I'd like to believe that those of us that believe in humanitarian intervention are ahead of the game, not behind it. And one of the major reasons for that, uh, I would suggest that uh, those in the audience that haven't looked at uh, Rudy Rummel's death by government should have a look at it because uh, what it shows, this was funded by the U.S. Institute of Peace, what it shows is that in the 20th century, governments in just the 20th century alone slaughtered their own populations at a rate somewhere between double and quadruple the totality of all combatant casualties uh, uh, in all wars of the 20th century combined. In other words, governments killing their own people is an enormously important uh, component of human rights. And uh, I will remain one of those, like my former colleague Richard Lillick and Professor Myers McDougall, that strongly support uh, and am saddened by uh, uh, these uh, determinations, uh, uh, which you're, you state absolutely correctly, Yoram, uh, do point in the other direction as to uh, state practice and 
and uh, authoritative expectations. Okay.